talk us through those 80 minutes. No, we prepared to win. We knew that we were here to make history. The whole week, that's what we told ourselves. And you know what? I'm so proud of the boys. Absolutely humbled. And the guys came out. They played with enormous testicles. And we absolutely did it. Fantastic effort. I'm such a happy captain. Welcome back to another episode of The Dropped Kickoff. It is so good to have you. My name is Nick Wasiliev, and uh, I'm sorry it's been a little while since our last episode, but March was a very, very, very busy month for all of us because the inmates were slowly taking over the asylum um, over at rugby.com.au, and my, uh, I'm delighted to have... He's now... Uh, he's now. We, we spent the time, all of us writing articles and ripping off rugby.com.au, but now we have someone who actually writes for them. Nathan, how are you, mate? I'm doing good. It's gone full circle. As I, <laughs> as I said on Twitter, the slow infiltration of Rugby Australia has begun with green and gold. But no, it's, it's, been, it's been great so far. And I'm not just saying it for them there, but there's a lot of great people in there and a lot of great stuff going on within the organisation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome to see you there and awesome to see... Um, a, positive, a more positive discussion and chat around rugby and have you in there. But our other guest, uh, of course, is our resident uh, Melbourne Rebels uh, fan, Dylan. How are you, mate? Oh, I'm good, thanks, mate. It's uh, good to see people using green and gold to uh, grow to greener pastures. I've had to, <laughs> I've had to drop the name a few times in job interviews, and then it has worked for me a couple of times down here. Not often. People sometimes think I write for uh, the New York Times the way I talk about it, but, you know, it's always good to uh, play yourself up. Oh, you got to play yourself up. Let's. Uh, you may as well. If you're in the if you're in the news team and you're having a bit of fun, you got you got to roll with it. You got to take the punches, mate. And embrace the nepotism. It gets you places. Absolutely. That's that's what rugby's all about, isn't it? <laughs> Just ask Phil Kearns. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> um. So for all of our listeners, much like previous Q and As, we have asked. Uh, reached out to the world of Twitter and uh, thrown uh, asked for some questions for tonight's episode, and you did not disappoint with a whole bunch of questions that we'll be asking. And we'll kick off first. This one's actually more of a question uh, that I put out there um, before we dive into the more audience the questions that the uh, the Twitter sphere got gave us. Um, and I'm going to throw to you first for this, Nathan, because you were the one who reported it on uh, earlier today, which is the news that. Uh, there are two new Pacific Island teams, Moana Pacifica and the Fijian Drua, which will officially be joining Super Rugby from 2021. Is this now the best competition on earth? What can you tell us about this? Uh, it's not official yet. They've still got to go through the necessary steps and processes. But it's a today was a massive, massive day, in my opinion, for rugby, especially in this area and around the Pacific. Uh, I generally think it, this is a move that's been long overdue. I think a lot of the criticism that you could have made of, I guess, both Rugby League and Rugby Union is that they've had a lot of these talent come from that area. But it hasn't been a really pathway for those guys to come through their from their country, play Super Rugby, and then go on to represent their country. So for Rugby to finally have those two, two essentially teams that can also facilitate those type of players not only staying in their country, but staying in rugby, I think is a wonderful move. And I'm looking forward to it hopefully all getting sorted in 2022, where I believe the word is that they'll be looking to play super 12-team super rugby. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. So there's, this will be the last year of 
of just your, your normal standard competitions and then and then going into Trans Tasman, I, I believe, or is that uh, or is it all still up in the air? I mean, I don't know. I don't. I'm the messenger boy, so I, I'm <laughs> simply a writer. But what's been essentially widely reported is that they want to move to 12 teams in 2022. Hopefully, all the borders and that will be open, so they can be a lot more free with essentially playing games in Fiji and Samara and Tonga and have essentially that free move between teams. But the idea, hopefully, is to have a conditional 12-team competition with uh, those teams that are based in New Zealand or primarily based in New Zealand or Australia mixed in with Fiji, Samara and all that. But I I think it's really exciting. And I think it's it's a move that only makes the Super Rugby stronger. And you've got to make that that argument of, is it now the best competition in the world? <laughs> Look, we might be slightly biased, though. But Dylan, what are your thoughts on this? Are we? Is it now the best competition on earth, or are we just are we talking out of our asses? Look, it's a very tough question to answer because, like, I don't want to, I'm not going to talk too much on it, but Friday night's game between the Rebels and the Force might be one of the worst games of rugby I've ever seen. So you put them up against uh, an entertaining Fiji inside or you put them up against the Crusaders or the Chiefs or something, it's just not going to be good quality rugby. That being said, there's a lot of opportunity for some really entertaining rugby out there now. So I think it's a fair, fair statement to make. But I think it's about, as Nathan said, it's, you know, it's been a long time coming and I'm not sure um, if you guys are following uh, Dan Leo, the uh, former Samoan player, Talked a lot of it, and he's had a documentary come out this year, Oceans Apart, talking about the treatment of yeah, the Pacific Islands. Mm. Yeah, the Pacific Islands, and you know, it's their biggest export is rugby players. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and you know, the treatment, the the corruption that goes on in those um, those countries. That it's probably good that we're now starting to see them get their own teams, get them included, and hopefully they get the funding to keep them going. And we're not just using this as a bit of a a breeding ground for more Wallabies and All Blacks and everything else. And just international players worldwide, the amount of players that you see from those areas that get eligibility to play for England or eligibility to play for France or like... There's someone on um, on Instagram, I can't think of who it is at the moment, which rugby, you know, uh, post uh, page it is, but they, uh, they've done like a world like a Tongan 15 of world eligible players and a Fijian 15. And you look at this and you sort of go, Jesus Christ, that would be a that would be a decimating team to watch them play. Like to see, you know, Taniella Tupo playing for Tonga and um, just that would be a scary sight for for an Australian team if they if these guys got to uh, all got called back to the motherland. Yeah, it is, and I think I know that they would. They talked about uh, this back back you know donkeys years ago when the eighteen team and two conference expansion was thrown out. I remember they talked about the idea of having a, there was a, another alternative few, uh, proposal put forward by fans where it would just be three conferences of six teams uh, with the Argentinian team in the Australian conference and then the, a Pacific Island team of sorts playing uh, in the New Zealand conference. I think it's great that it's now finally coming to fruition. And I really hope that it tu- that it touches on and covers, uh, you know, that the issue that, that you mentioned here with that documentary, which, by the way, if anyone hasn't had the chance to, to watch that documentary, go and do it because it highlights so much 
amazing stuff about just the actual sheer level of it. It's something that we're all vaguely familiar with. The amount that of uh, that the amount of stuff that the amount of players who leave to go and play for for other countries, how much it occurs and how much it actually affects the respective Pacific nations rugby teams and how they go because they should be like up there with some of the best teams in the world um, and the level of corruption there. I think it's, it's going to be a real positive and hopefully a statement of intent by world rugby, but also New Zealand rugby and Australian rugby that they want to help grow that uh, grow that part of rugby because it is such an important part for, uh, for the game in the world in general um, but before we move on to question two I kind of want to I, I kind of want to poke you a little bit about that force rebels game because everyone that I've been I've gotten into a couple of Twitter spats with folks about this Dylan and that is I thought I was actually kind of more interested in the more dogged nature of the clash I know that you were absolutely furious with it because the rebels came on the wrong side of it but i'm going to play devil's advocate for a minute and ask you about is it was it because the rebels played shit because part of me also thought that the force just defended their guts out for that whole game so the rebels played atrociously i'm not going to pull any punches on that one and i think that it's hard to say did the force defend properly because the rebels had no attack and I had my, my girlfriend there with me and, and she even said, she goes, why aren't they attacking space? And I just looked at her and went, I don't know. So, you know, I could go on and think who the attack, I don't know what the attack coach is doing. So, I, like, they they didn't have any any pod structure. So they had someone setting off, setting up. They'd have, you know, Farmer Silly set up. He was seven, eight metres away from the ruck and then they had Tamur behind them. That's a really predictable thing to defend. Like, our Colts don't even do, don't even set up attack like that. We we get them in proper pods to create structures that say, "Hey, what are they going to do?" So if they defend, you know, if the defenders are really in close to the ruck, well, we're going to set up a little bit wider, or if they're all spread out, we're going to come in nice and close. We're going to hit the space. We're going to suck defenders in. They just had one-off runners getting isolated. In actual fact, I think it's a, a criticism of the force. They didn't get more penalties because I saw so many one-off runners just running into players and thinking, oh, my God, here they go. They're going to get hands on the ball and there's going to be a penalty and they're just going to be marched up the field. But they didn't. So I actually, to, you know, not to you know, be too critical on the force, but if, they were, if, if that was um, you know, McWright or Wilson or even Liam Wright, that back row would have destroyed a, you know, Artie Severe, Sam Kane. They would have just had hands all over it. The Force don't really have that sort of quality of back rower who can do that that work. And I think that was probably what saved the Rebels from a shellacking. But it just wasn't. It, it just reminded me of those days of going, oh, this is just bad rugby to watch. Uh, and to be honest, and we, I think we, if we'd had 6,000 people at that stadium, I would have been really surprised. Yeah, look, it's I I'm I kind of thought it, I was more impressed with the forces defense in terms of actual defensive pressure, which I thought made the rebels, which really neutralized the rebels' uh, attempts at attack, particularly in the second half, because in the first half their their kicking game was much, like so much better than the forces was was when you had the likes of of Hodge and Tamur actually doing decent kicks, but. It was a it was a game that the rebels tried all their best to lose, and I think they should be incredibly disappointed about it. But we'll move on to the next because I know we're going to be covering that a little bit uh, further down the track. Um, we'll move on to question two, 
Um, and shout out to the Rugby Fixation podcast on Twitter for this uh, for this question. They say that you can make a very solid Wallaby side from just the Brumbies and the Rebels, talking about the likes of Slipper, Fienga, Ella, uh, Toa, Neville, LSL, Valentini, McWright, Wilson, White, James O'Connor. They did a whole list, um, which uh, we'll link into the, uh, in the, into the description box. Boys, you've got the list here in front of you. Who else, apart... I mean, they make a very great point that you could name a fantastic squad from just the Brumbies and the Rebels, who are both playing excellent rugby right now. Brumbies and the Reds. Sorry, Brumbies and the Reds, rather. Sorry, not the Rebels. <laughs> um, <laughs> so sorry, not to not to not to not to drive the point home, Dylan. Um, but uh, who who else do you think forces their way into this side? I'm going to throw to you uh, to you for this one, Nathan. What do you reckon? Just looking at the squad, my goodness, it's it's incredible. And when you consider, uh, I mean, obviously linked in the description, but when you consider, it's you, you still miss a, a fair bit of talent. It, one of the most the, Unluckiest man in Australia, Jock Campbell doesn't even get a run in this twenty-three. I think he's he's been outstanding. Uh, like if if Dave Rennie was to name this squad, you'd almost look away being happy. The, the guys I would personally, I mean, Corbetti probably going to be on on one of the wings. Um, I don't know if they're going to get him back in time, but you'd bring someone like a Matt Phillip back into the lock. Um, I'm yes, I'm I'm a Waratahs fan, so I'm I'm a sucker for Michael Hooper. Still, I'm still hanging on to that, and I I will, <laughs> I will continue to hang on to that <clears throat> until I'm gone. But I mean, it's I guess that that's gonna be the reality. This Wallabies team probably is gonna have a large makeup of these two teams, and I mean it's it's a very strong team. It's very hard to find spots for other players to kind of come into. I think that well, look. I, I think it gives it gives a good sense of the actual depth in some particular roles because um, if we were to talk about from other squads, um, as much as the Waratahs have absolutely been shown up, I think it would be a miss to at least not have the likes of you know Harry Johnson Holmes uh, included in the uh, in the extended squad as a backup. Um, even though you've still got some fantastic props there in the form of Slipper and Alalatoa. Um, and, of course, we haven't even got to to Taniela Tupo yet. Um, so and, Angus, someone like Angus Bell, Lockie Swinton can come in from that Waratah team. I still don't rate Lockie Swinton. I know you do. I really don't. I wouldn't I wouldn't even have him in the, in the extended squad. He's just he's that South African type of player. He's the type of guy that will just go out there. And it, when you, against, the, against the Kiwi side, which, let's face it, is... is and, is metaphorically ten foot tall when it comes to the world of rugby. We'll go out there and put a shot on, and that's something I, that that's something you need. I agree that's, with you. I think he's 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 probably the biggest grub in Australian rugby. So the second <laughs> he puts a gold jersey on, I think you're going to get everyone cheering for him. I think he was really unlucky with that that red card. But I yeah, I'd want him. I what we'll add. I did love watching Pone Farmasili throw him the other weekend, <laughs> but. <laughs> the other one I'll, I'll, I'll add on to Swinton is um, I think Josh Kemeny from the Rebels has been putting in a big yeah. shift. Mm-hmm. I think he's a he has the talent to be a hard man too. Like his defensive efforts are huge, and God knows the Rebels are making them put it in there. Um, I'm just going to jump in and be a little bit critical that I actually don't rate. I'm going to say something very controversial here. I don't rate Falau Flanger. Ooh, that's I not a bad shout. You take you put him in a gold jersey. I don't think he does anything special. At the Brumbies, he looks good because the Brumbies pack. I, you know, it, anyone can score off the back of that 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 rolling mall. Mm. 
you know, shit, Lola Seo scores off the back of that rolling mall. <laughs> no 10 should be scoring off the back of a, of a mall. Um, and, you know, if you look at it, um, who else have I got out there? I agree. I would every day of the week pick Corabetti over da- um, Dalgunu. I know Dalgunu looks great in a highlight reel, but I think that he still has a lot to grow. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm, again, People look at these these comments in black and white. I'm not saying Dalguna will never be a great Wallaby. I just think, you know, in the same way that Corabetti wasn't a great Wallaby when he started, but gee, he might be the most influential player in Australian rugby right now. I think. Mm. Um, and yeah. in another another controversial one. I am not a Tom Banks fan. Really? No, I don't know about that. I mean, well, who else? Who else would you have in that um, at, um, at fullback? Because I mean, Maddox isn't performing right now. Right now at the Waratahs, um, I, the forces always, always one option coming up. Geordie the tire, put him back there. Let him go. <laughs> <laughs> he, can kick, he can kick now. Let, he can. let let him go at fullback and just tell him, mate, here's the ball. Do something special. We got plenty. Of, as you've alluded to, Dylan, we have plenty of wingers, and I think the fact that someone like Dungan is essentially. You're probably your third, your third string winger behind Wright and Corabetti. Speak to the depth that we have, but I mean, I'm I'm a Banks fan. But if you're looking for someone else, I know it's been an option that that's been thrown up in the past by other other commenters to to chuck him back there. And my only kind of knock at him was his kicking. I didn't think he had the kicking game, and he he proved me wrong last week with that fifty twenty two. Just give him a shot, I reckon. What is Pataia's best position? You've no, now just thrown it out there, Nathan, but you, you think about it, he's played... He's, he's effectively the Reese Hodge of the Reds. Yeah. Well, look... I, I, mainly wing. I thought he was an outside centre. He's an outside centre for the Reds, isn't he? He's, no, in, the, he's in the back line. No, well, he's been moved to the wing for the past couple of weeks. Because been... they, they put him at 13 when they put Paisami at 12, and then they put um, Stewart at 12 and Paisami at 13... I actually think Paisami at twelve is a uh, a really good one. I think um, I think he, you know, everyone's talking about him being, um, you know, the Australian Sunny Bill. I reckon he'd be the Australian Maya Nonu. Mm. I reckon he's. I reckon he'll. I don't know. I've, got, I've just got good feelings about him. He's, he's a great. He's a great player. I think. But I think it was telling that when um when when he was out last week, they went for fluke instead of when they had Dungunu on the bench. That I think they they see him now as a winger, and I mean Fluke. Let's give him credit where it's due. He played incredible in that game against the Brumbies, but I think they've slowly figured out that the time is best served in that wing. That crossfield kick is probably your best example of it paying off. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think I think well, we're all in agreement that he's going to be in that squad. Um, going back to the question. Um, that we were talking about. There's there's two or three. There's maybe three or four that I probably would consider outside of the the Reds and the Brums to maybe to maybe get in and staying sticking with the Tars for, for my first two. I mean, would you even consider in in terms of the extended squad uh, swapping out Lalesio and putting Will Harrison in because Harrison, as much as young as he is, he is also showing a lot of grit, particularly with um with a Waratah squad that is. Uh, with a Waratah backline that is getting shown up week after week after week, and his 
ability to pl- to kick with the boot has been incredibly impressive as well. Additionally, he goes off. He go. He com- he combines really well with Jake Gordon, who would be another person that I think you need to consider, c- given his experience. Um, and additionally, coming on to support White, um, in that role too. I think would it would be mad not to include Jake Gordon in Wallaby contention as well. He's a really great um halfback. Um. What do you think? What are your thoughts on that? Do you guys think it's a, a potential? There's a that they're, they're uh, being excluded, or do you think it's no Waratahs at all? Are we a Warat- are we a Waratah free zone given the last couple of weeks? No, I think you've got to you've got to keep them in contention, and and I think that look, Australia's made up of five teams. To to limit it to just two, you're going to miss out on on, on those things. So I think I think you know Lalesio and or Lalesio, sorry, and um. And Harrison have got a long future in Australian rugby. They are probably going to be our fly halves at the next um, World Cup. So get them both in. Get them the chance to grow. It's the one thing I, I was my big criticism of of Michael Checker was that post two thousand and fifteen he he tried to cling to that that yeah, squad. Yeah, and so you know there are guys like you know I'd almost forgotten that. Joe Powell has a couple of wallaby caps because he, yeah. was th- he was thrown in off the bench for a couple of minutes and then that was it. And mm. if you look at, you know, Jake Gordon's first wallaby cap, you know, it was off the bench. Like, you know, the, he's checker didn't invest in the young guys in the way that he probably should have. But, you know, I think back to, you know, that 2015 all black squad and how many of those guys had had 50 plus caps, they didn't really have a lot of rookies in there. Mm. Um, you know, and now you got a guy, you know, got a guy like Aaron Smith who wasn't in that 2011 squad, but had made it his own, and you know TJ Piranara. Uh, and so I think, I think you've got to bring those guys. So whether they're in the match day 22 or not, I think, but I think you need those guys in the squad. Yeah. You need those young guys. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm really excited to see Trevor Hosea. I'm kind of upset that he missed out last year. Mm. I think Hosea will be a few, you know, a, a force to be reckoned with in the Wallabies. Um, you know, like you said, Matt Phillip bringing him back. That aggression, you, you've talked about Lockie Swinton. Um, <laughs> you know, th- those are those are things that you're going to need because some of these guys are quite young. So th- their longevity isn't dependent on getting as much rugby into them straight away, but getting them to get that rugby brain working. Totally, totally agree with that. Uh, I think Gordon, especially. I think I, I don't think it was no coincidence that the, the Waratahs' best game was two weeks ago when he was back. I think he's he's been electric for him, and it wouldn't surprise me to see him grab a bench spot. Someone I, I do want to throw out there just because it came up while we had this conversation. Firstly, absolutely agree with Pone. I love the man. I want I want him in gold. He's just mm. you throw him off the bench. Even if you throw him off the bench for twenty minutes, he, he's going to be an energizer. Uh, another one, whilst that one position that does look like it's up for, oh, one of the positions that looks like it's up for grabs uh, is Hooker. And one that they've got in there, over in the West, uh, uh, Fleti Katui. I think it's yeah. Katui, how you pronounce it. It's the things he does right is what you need in a hooker. He throws the ball straight. He's, he's a great scrummager. He's got a very good work rate around him. And I think he's someone that could be a real bolter come July. If the force can continue playing well, and with let's face it, this hook the hooker spots wide up, wide open at this mm. stage. So it'd be interesting to see how or what direction they go 
Mm. Staying with the force, actually, and, and this will probably be like the last point before we should move on because I'm aware of time. Um, there are two other people who are at least two or three others from the West that I'll um, have in contention. We forget to mention that there's a there's actually a Wallaby prop over there in Tom Robertson um, as well, who could be a potential contender um, in the event that you know we have we have uh, some uh, we have you know we run out of stocks in the in the prop department. Um, and he's shown himself to be a very capable prop at international level, and has been really, I think, been really positive for the force in their in terms of scrummaging, because um, the force scrum has always has been consistently competitive, even against the likes of the Reds and the Brumbies. Um, I really like Fergus Lee Warner as well in terms of that lock role. In terms of a bolter, he's been amazing for the force. Um, he, you, we talk about Lockie Swinton putting on the big hit. The problem that I have with Lockie Swinton, and I'm going to say it again, is that whenever the the, the it's a back against the wall situation, he goes quiet. When and, and this is something that often happens when you're playing against. Like if you get if the if you're all lip and you are shown up, you've essentially got nothing to come back with. Fergusly Warner, on the other hand, is. Talking, he's actually walking the walk from some of his positions. He finds himself in play. He's a fantastic workhorse, and so I really hope he could be a potential bolter. Obviously, there's a long way to go when you have the likes of Neville and LSL in the in the lock position, um, which is great. Again, good indication of the potential depth we have um, in the lock in the uh, in the second row. But I reckon he could be a really great potential bolter, judging by how he's played at the force. What do we? Re- uh, what do you reckon, Dylan? Do you reckon there'll be uh, some? Some interesting uh, places out there. Well, you've also forgotten they've got, they've got a Wally playing in their second row in Sitaleki Tamani. Yeah, true. Yeah. I mean, he hasn't he hasn't played for the Wallabies for eight years now, but he's he was one of the more impressive players on Friday night. Um, he just his ability at the lineout. He went up at the lineout and just one hand grabbed the ball, came down, presented. I I can't think of the last time a Wallaby was able to to do that. So. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, I, I do agree with you about Fergus Lee Warner. Um, I'd be really intrigued to see how he goes, give him a crack. Um, he is a hard man. I've been quite impressed watching him this season. Um, I think they will get a couple from the force this year. Uh, I think though, yeah, I'm just not sure how, who, um, who they will get. Uh, I'm trying to think who are their sort of standouts because they've got a lot of imports, which makes it a bit harder to. Yeah, well, I mean, they've, they've got a lot of the the uh, they've got a whole bunch of blokes from uh, the Pumas and the Jaguares, um, including Tibet, Thomas Cabelli, um, Santiago Medrano, um, Thomas Lazana. Um, so a whole bunch of players, in addition to some other imports like uh, Henry Taifu, uh, uh, as well as you know, you, and Rob Kearney. Let's not forget him as well. Um, he, just casually, he is incredible. Can, we, can yeah, he, he come play? The Wallabies need a fullback. Can he come play fullback for the Wallabies? <laughs> oh, we can only dream look i think the force are in a really interesting position i think this will lead us quite nicely onto question three in that uh they have a, they've got a lot of young they do have some young blood in the likes of your kane katekas your your fergus lee warners um and and the like um but they've also i think having those those real experienced heads around is is doing wonders for them and improving the actual game of those younger players so you get to see those younger players really stand out a bit more also we should we should also talk about brian ralston on the wing he's a gun as well like a fantastic player on the wing really dangerous and i think he almost showed up um he he had a tough he was kept a little quieter um last week 
I think uh, when you when you're going up a lot against the likes of Corobetti, but uh, it's it's so fascinating uh, what's going on with the squad over there. I will say that that's probably the one difference that I think that the Rebels have in playing Corobetti, and then I know they're playing Lamani there at the moment, but Anderson. They are two or three very hungry wingers. So Corobetti is always trying to make, you know, go for, go hunting. And it, it, even Lamani, I mean, Lamani plays like a halfback, but... Because um, he is one. <laughs> well, he, yeah, he is one. I, the, the, that, that's another conversation. But that hunger, I think, is something that you see is, isn't always there in a winger. They sort of, we hear, oh, that winger was kind of quiet. They didn't go hunting enough. And that's where I think that's where Corabetti's taken his game to that next level to make him, you know, um, Jack Knoll does it for England and Exeter. He's a hungry winger. And, you know, we've got some great wingers, but are they hungry enough? I would ask. Are they the ones that are going to go and that, that pick and go, or they, they're going to make something happen. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we've got all these great wingers, but are they going to be hungry? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think this leads nicely on to question three, um, which is was actually proposed by multiple people. We had both uh, Pick and Drive Rugby, shout out to to the boys there, um, but also NRC Sydney, um, who has been a, a big chatter uh, in terms of the third tier in the NRC specifically for a while, um, talking about they want to hear more about New South Wales pathways. So I wrote an article uh, on Gaga relatively recently where I touched on the the issues that basically led to uh, New South Wales rugby being in the position they are now, um, and I've had a really interesting response in regards to that. Um, Pick and Drive basically asked, you know, what would they want to kind of know a bit more about New South Wales pathways? What if there is no return of something like the NRC or similar in future, or if the NRC or it's or something equivalent come back as last time? Um, what uh, would it come? What would it look like? In essentially, what is the optimal kind of composition structure for a third tier or NRC competition? Um, I'll link this the article that I wrote uh, in the end slate in the in the description for you guys to have a, uh, you guys to check out. Um, provide your own comments on. Um, I'll throw to you. Actually, I'm going to throw to you first for this one, Dylan, because I know that having the likes of unlike here in Sydney. Um, in terms of a, a more wider NRC discussion, I know that the Rising did a lot of interesting stuff down at the Rebels, um, which I know you you had mixed feelings on in terms of, like, for example, playing not playing in Melbourne for two years. But in terms of an actual player development, what are your thoughts in terms of actual pathways and how it worked for you? I think it's a, um, a really interesting prospect. I'm a big fan of the NRC, by the way. I think we, we need it. I think we, we need it. I think it creates great pathways for players. Um, having spoken to a couple of guys that did play NRC uh, for the uh, for the Rising, um, the big criticism for them was it was treated a little bit like the training for the Rebels. And so they had training a couple of days a week. Like well, The Rebels players were training full-time, as you'd expect. But then it was really hard for those guys who, well, we're not getting paid They've got, you know, they're they're not they're uni students or whatnot, but they're not getting paid, so they've got to try and balance a full time job and trying to get to training, and um, so that's where the pathway sort of let them down a little bit because how do you balance how do you balance it and not make money, uh, or how do you balance the full time commitment but while not making money? Um, 
but I think it is an important one. And I think it's actually one that the Rebels re- have have neglected a little bit because I think there was a question I raised a couple of weeks ago on the pod um, that I didn't get to, I missed out on about the, you know, who's the most valuable player at your club. And the sad reality for us at the Rebels is like, we just don't have that, that history because it's just to really answer that question. So like my answer for that is Reese Hodge. And before everyone boos me because they think he's out of position and whatnot, he is someone that we've brought up who has stuck with us since 2016, 17. He's, he's committed to the Rebels, even though, you know, he's a manly boy and everything. He's a Rebels guy. He, you know, he hasn't been... And the worst thing for the Rebels would be for him to be lured up to the, to the Waratahs or for, um, for him to go overseas because I think that that then just creates this transient truck stop culture of, all right, we'll go to the Rebels, Nick Phipps, James O'Connor, Kurtley Beale. I'll play there for a bit, make some money, and then I'll go back and try and win a premiership or go overseas. Um, and so I think the NRC really could be used as a tool to grow Victorian talent. But it could also be used to, in growing Victorian talent for people to go, hey, I know that guy. I went to school with that guy. I played against that guy. Where that's that's really been lost now because, you know, a lot of um, we don't, I don't know if you guys know this, it used to be on the weekend, if you didn't play for the Rebels, you played Dewar Shield, which is the competition down here in, in Melbourne. But that's gone mm. now. Uh, if you don't play for the Rebels, you don't play Dewar Shield anymore. Really? Uh, yeah, they, they got rid of that a couple of uh, a couple of years back. Um, so they don't play at all? No, they come and play Shoot Shield or up in, um, up in Brisbane. Oh, jeez. <laughs> so they – look, I understand, that, I understand both arguments for this. But, you know, I, I was chatting to some guys at Melbourne Uni who remembered one year having um, Jordan Ulysi, Ferretti Sanger um, packed down in the front row one weekend and then have Rob Leota at eight. Like, that's a, pretty, that's a pretty strong forward pack. And then one year they had, because the players got rotated, they had their back three was Tom English, Dom Shipley and Jonah Placid one game because the Rebels had a bike, go play Dewar Shield. So what happened? That's a pretty lethal back three that's they carved up. So, um, so that wasn't really helping Victorian rugby. But then they've sent players. Um, so they, But then they decided, well, let's send them up north because we want to get a better competition for them. But that's really disincentivized a lot of Victorians, hasn't it? So I think we've got to bring it back. I think we, uh, I think we need to really focus on that as a pathway because I think that's also been a problem in New South Wales is that pathway. Uh yeah, it's it's well. This this was the basis of the question initially talking about New South Wales pathways because this whole discussion started about about the state of of the Waratahs and the argument that I had made and this was probably a point about you know Australian rugby in general was that now we are at a stage where you know the, unlike in Victoria where where rugby is where everything is managed by the VRU in in New South Wales everything's a lot more fragmented. Sydney Rugby Union operates separate to New South Wales Rugby. Um, I think the New South Wales Country Rugby Union does its own thing as well. And the, the, the issue lies is in the past that didn't really matter because the actual step up from the quality of shoot shield to international matches wasn't that large. But now it is. Now you need that bridging competition where you have amateur players playing alongside and against professional players um, to actually get a sense of that professional environment and help build that depth. 
And unfortunately, as as you know, even though the Shoot Shield is is a very valuable competition, and, and you need and the fact that it is the quality of rugby is good, it's just not at a level close enough to Super Rugby right now because the professional system has changed so much. Um, which is why the which is why we have always kind of put forward that argument about the need for a bridging competition like the NRC. Um, Nathan, I want to hear your thoughts on this because I know that you know you've you're a Wix boy, um, but additionally to that, you've been very pro NRC for a while. Um, in terms of the in, in relation to the question, both Pick and Drive kind of asked the question. You know, what if there is no return for the NRC in the future? Or what if the NRC does return, what does it look like? Should it stay as it was? Should it change? What are your thoughts on this pathway system right now, particularly in the context of how dire things have become for the Waratahs and their uh, transition of talent? I generally think you could answer this in its own podcast. I think it's it's a very complex situation. <laughs> I Being a shit chill dice and a ramic boy, I... I don't really disagree with the fact that there's a big gap between the shoot shield and stepping up to Super Rugby. I think the person you can point to to show that is Tim Anstey. While everyone wants to talk to him about his uh, as a sevens player, he was picked up and has essentially um, not not really learnt, but um, got familiar with the 15 aside game playing for Eastwood. He when he was playing for Eastwood and got them close to the finals. That's where he started to make a name for himself in the 15-a-side game. And he's shown that that step up from Churchill to um, Super Rugby isn't as far as some might think when you just look at the Waratahs as a case study. For me, I think I think it's one of those, we, not weird, but almost dilemmas where the Churchill is, a, I, th- I think, still a good level and can still compete at the Super Rugby but the NRC and what it can produce in terms of continuity, in terms of getting those, as you, as you mentioned, those amateur players inside that environment is just great. And it's something that we haven't kind of had in Australian rugby, that depth around, because in the past it's been shoot, shield or nothing. And you've seen players from across, even across the country, I, I remember coming through the sh- coming down to shoot, shield and playing. But now that you have that NRC, you now have something which can almost, if not rival it, if not, Topic because you have a lot more professional players playing it. As for the questions I've asked, uh, I'm I've I've always been pro NRC. I think that's the, the I don't have any issue with the format how it was run last year. Oh, sorry, two years ago. I but I do believe it has to be run by the state bodies. I think as you alluded to in your article, Nick, if when it's run by the clubs, you all of a sudden start losing. The importance of it, I think, because naturally the clubs are going to be worried about themselves and worry about their own players, and that, and rightfully so. I mean, that for them, they've found a way to make themselves profitable as a, essentially an amateur competition. Tell me another club competition in any sport which is mainly amateur based that is able to attract the sponsors, attract the, a TV deal by itself, attract all the stuff that the Shootshill has. So they have every right to do it. The problem is. They, they, it's every right for themselves, but it just hasn't served Australian rugby. So I I kind of lean with option B. I think we have to look at NRC coming back. And when we're in a position that we can do it, it's got to be a lost leader. Because let's face it, you're not going to get the crowd turning up to it. We've, historical facts have shown that. At least not the crowds that we want to see. 
So I think you need to just see it as a look. It's it's a product that you're probably not going to get much attendance to, but it's so crucial it, given we have a 2023 World Cup coming up, even even towards the 2027 World Cup, and just ensuring that whilst you won't have people maybe attending this comp, but in five years' time, you'll have uh, once that World Cup comes, you'll have a strong Wallaby squad that tens of thousands are going to be wanting to get behind and back. I don't know, like, if you guys probably don't follow it too much up there, but the AFL women's. Um, yeah, I follow yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. I, I was lucky enough. I got to uh, chat at my work. I got to chat to Shani Layton or Shani Norder now about about her time at Collingwood. But, yeah, you were saying. So they're, um, I was chatting to a, uh, one of my, my mates. His dad is a, uh, an AFL commentator. And we were chatting about it probably two years ago. And uh, he said, look, the AFL are losing money. But what they're doing is they're investing in the right ways. And, and there was a big stink because the women weren't paid the same as the men. And, and, you know, everyone got, you know, how is it that one player, you know, the one club salary is less than one, pl- one male players. But what they've done is they went, well, we're not going to invest in giving money to the players. We're going to invest in the clubs. We're going to invest in advertising. We're going to invest in growing the game. Because initially what they did is they just had a whole bunch of female athletes. They had some women that played, uh, played footy and grew up playing it. But... Uh, you know, I, there was a girl from my uni who was a basketballer, but this was her opportunity. And by investing in the game, not the players, they were able to now grow the game. Those crowds are massive. There is a genuine following for the sport. It's not just, oh, there's nothing on, I'll watch the women's. It's, I am a fan of this women's team. And so I really think that what the AFL, sorry, what Rugby Australia need to do is to to take a leaf out of that book and go, all right, we're going to invest in this. And I know, look, I know the, the code's broke, but they should have invested in growing the game. And that's that's the grassroots we're talking about. And that's the growing, investing in this level because giving money to the to Shoot Shield or Dewar Shield or Brisbane clubs isn't going to fix anything. It's not. I don't think it's going to grow the game, but I think investing in an NRC in knowing, look, we're not going to get a following, but this is how we're going to get a following. And this is what we're going to do to grow the talent is there. And so it, it needs to come back. I think, it, I think I genuinely think it needs to come back. Otherwise, we're just going to keep losing these young guys. I've, I've seen a few, I think even you wrote an article, Nathan, about some of these young guys signing with Japanese rugby because they've been playing... Uh, in the Japanese competition for a couple of years because they didn't really have they didn't make um, the Reds or the uh, the Rebels or the Brumbies or the Waratahs at the time so they've gone over and played in the Japanese comp they probably weren't making much money now they're getting picked for Japan because they're eligible that's that's a future for us if we don't have a pathway for these young guys yeah it's it's interesting you touch on that and <clears throat> I think kind of touching on that point of where to invest as well, um, in my opinion, there's two places that we should invest. One would be an NRC comp. And additionally, touching on your point, Dylan, because you raised a great point when we started this discussion um, about the fact that you have to actually make this player friendly as well. You have to have a, give them an incentive to want to do it and, you know, making them have to, you know, at least ensuring some sort of, you know, if they're doing a full-time job or if they're missing out on opportunities in order to have the chance to play NRC rugby. 
ensure that they have they have opportunities to, if not at least be financially looked after in some small capacity during the course of the season, then by extension from that, helping out with them with other potential opportunities and stuff. So even if the even if the I mean I know for a fact that the uh, the New South the New Zealand Minor Ten Cup has been running at a loss for years, but they keep it up because of the valuable players that it brings through into those super rugby clubs and then by extension to the All Blacks. Um, it's what the NRC looks like. I think that you can either go one of two ways. You either bring it back the way that it was um, with b- before it was shut down, where you have your two Queensland teams, your two New South Wales teams, a team from each re- um, respective state. Um, if the Drew want to come along, but though I hear they're, they're moving to higher places now. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And or you actually do. <clears throat> I've also been kind of open to the idea if, if if brand recognition is that serious of a problem, then doing something like having five teams from each respective state that are just an affiliate team more closely aligned with the Super Rugby brand. So like you have your Brumby Runners, your Junior, your Junior Waratahs. Um, I don't. I can't remember the, the or your your Perth your WA Gold. I think it was back in the day or the or your your. Um, your, your kind of junior teams um, that could be that could take the form of those NRC franchises and they play in a 10-week comp, play each other twice. Similar to how rugby, uh, rugby Super Rugby AU is right now at the end of the season. Um, not only not, that, but... Not to link back to the AFL again. I know we don't, you know, we don't talk about the heathen sport, but... Don't talk about it, no. <laughs> in... Um... Hey, look, they did, they're doing stuff that Rugby Australia could only dream of. We've got to, you know, admire that. Yeah, um, <laughs> uh, they're making money. Um, so with the in, – in, in the AFL, if you don't play for, the, for your team, so you then go and play in Victoria, it's the VFL, so which is, you know, used to be the, the premiership competition, then they had the AFL. And in that comp- – that, that is an amateur team. But yep, you have paid players that go down. So um, if you're not from, if you don't play for the Demons, the Melbourne Demons, you'll go and play for the Casey Demons on the weekend, which is an amateur team who have people training full time through it. You could do that same competition where, all right, I didn't make the Rebel squad this week. I'm playing for, uh, I'm in the Rising squad, which has got local amateur guys. They're on some money because. You know, that's their incentive, but it is a pathway to, for them to get potentially picked up or for just guys who go, look, I just love playing rugby. I'm a uni student. I don't need to work full time. And then you get to travel. And that, that would be the that's, that's one way I would I would see the competition, because I think that the problem is if you go into club politics of, well, we're not going to release this guy, we're not going to release that guy. It it can get get a little bit messy. So if you do it at the concurrent, you could do it like that. So using development, all guys in the development squad, that that'd help grow. You do it as a curtain raiser, you know. Get get down early on a Saturday to watch the um, the Brumby Runners versus the uh, the Western Australian Golds before the Brumbies force game. That gets people it gets people in earlier. Gets them more spending more on alcohol. Gets them spending more on food. Exposes them more to sponsors. Yeah. Yeah, it's look. There's, I think, there's a lot of opportunities there for a third tier, whatever it may be, and leaning into that festival side of rugby is not a bad idea. I'd consider that. Another thought would also be going to those clubs below your shoot shield. 
or below your dwarf or kind of at those lower grades and trying to support them and putting some sort of structure in place as well. Um, kind of if we're talking on the, the, the topic of, uh, of pathways, um, not necessarily in terms of financial incentive, but we did a podcast years ago um, with, with Fitzy talk when, and this was a, probably the second episode of the drop kickoff we ever did. Um, and we talked, and he talked a lot about ideas in terms of supporting clubs, such as it might not necessarily be financial funds, but, you could, for example, link up relevant premier uh, lower grade clubs with as feeder clubs to your shoot shield or your Dewar shield or your your Queensland comp. So lower clubs if, um, would would feed into the shoot shield clubs, which would feed into your NRC club, which would feed into a Super Rugby club. So you'd get an aligned system, and then the support would be on not just on that NRC team, but also on the those clubs below, whether it be giving them a business support in the form of, you know, expertise and training around how to get sponsors, um, how to connect with local schools, how to do this, that, and the other um, to actually help build up the entities of your local clubs. Um, so it wouldn't just be just financial incentives, but actual business savvy incentives was another uh, topic of discussion that I thought would be really cool for pathways. And then by extension, you'd have the strength of the NRC going down on competition, like coming from down on competitions like the Shoot Shield. So you'd have those players not getting selected for NRC, going and playing in Shoot Shield and bringing all that experience with them. But you've also got the competitiveness coming up. It would hopefully drive the the competitiveness of the competition up uh, of those premier grade competitions like your DeWare Shields, like your Fortescue premier grades in the West, like your Shoot Shields. Um, it would hopefully create a much more competitive environment of up-and-coming players from the lower clubs and players competing for professional positions in uh, who have played NRC. Um, it's almost like you're describing a centralised model, Nick. <laughs> where, where have we heard that before? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. But, yes, in answer to this question, because I know I'm aware that we're, we're, we need to get on, um, there's a lot of ways that we can uh, we can organise the, the pathway system Um whether it be the NRC coming back as it is, or with team just the with five teams that are kind of teams of based off the the Super Rugby sides, what matters is is that there is a bridging competition there. I think we I think all three of us are in agreement on this one. I mean that that there needs to be a competition to bridge the gap um, in terms of who of actually making sure there is a team there is. Uh, a clear line week in week out competition where the best of amateur players play with professional players and they either, and they either take that knowledge back to their club um, and help improve that club overall, or they get selected for a professional contract and go on to represent the Wallabies. Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Have to argue again. Nick, you've, uh, sorry, you guys have got the years of uh, rugby Australia. Don't you? You're up there in Sydney. Like they listen to you. We can, we can get this rolling. <laughs> well they asked the question multiple people asked the question we got to give a response um but now we'll go back down to the rebels because uh, this next question uh came from a bit of a discussion that i had with uh, with hugh tyndall shout out to hugh um on the uh, on friday night following this really disappointing uh, loss to the western force <sighs> As much as we are fans of um, on Gaga with of Dave Vessels, we've had him on the podcast. Um, we have we've loved a lot of the stuff. He's a really passionate guy for rugby. There is no denying 
right now that going into, I think, what's his third or fourth season as the Rebels, the Rebels seem to be suffering from the same issue around consistency um, in terms of they get they get a couple of wins on the trot and look great, but when they are down in the dumps, they are down in the dumps. So the question that Hugh asked in line with this, uh, considering him and I had a bit of a conversation about if the Rebels are kind of drifting or not, and I'm going to throw to you, Dylan, as our resident disgruntled Re- uh, Rebels supporter. <laughs> um, is Dave Vessels running out of time at the Rebels? Uh, look, I said this last year uh, after our disappointing loss to the Reds in the final. I said what saved Vessels at the Rebels was making the finals. Was that last ditch try that got us um, made, made the finals? That was it. Because every year we've done just a little bit better. Um, you know, and I can, I can remember pretty much every moment that, you know, that, that moment back in 2018 when we were just, we were a couple of points down from the Highlanders and it was, you know, that Nandola hit on Maddox and that sealed the, uh, the game. That was it. We, uh, we weren't going to make finals and that's been the thing. It's always been in someone else's destiny. And even now I looked at it and thought, can we still make the finals and just went, we need a lot of things to. We, we need the force to lose this weekend. We need to not. We need to get a bonus point to uh, bonus point loss to the Brumbies, and we need to beat the Waratahs. And the Reds need to smash the force. Like that's way too many things for a team that with the the crop that they've got. So, yeah, I, I to answer your question, I think his times times up. I think I think the weekend really highlighted. I think Dave's one of those coaches that's. A really nice guy. I think he, you know, what what it was really refreshing is listening to his uh, his post match interviews in, in during the checker era where he'd get up there and go, "We weren't good enough," or "Look, I let the boys down," or "I didn't have a good game plan." In the you know, as opposed to the Michael Checker, it was the refs, it was the commentators, it was Raylene Castle, like, and so to see Dave do that, you know, he was a breath of fresh air. But I think unfortunately, we just haven't seen the growth that we would have wanted. And we saw a high, high rebels turnover at the end of last year. And you expected a little bit of that post world cup, but we just haven't been able to find any real rhythm. And people look at it and go, you know, twice this season, I've, I've had messages, you know, a couple of times, sorry, the, uh, the rebels lost, you know, it was the rebels game to lose. They did everything to lose that game, but I don't actually think we did anything to win them either. Like that game against the reds, that first game. And it was sort of, thinking, oh, maybe we could win this. But we weren't really attacking. We were just defending. And the problem when you just defend is the second you make a mistake, another team scores. You know, look, look, and I just don't think they've played... I don't think they've played exciting rugby. I don't think they've played with any... I've never, you know, even watching those games, I just went, yeah. We're not really playing to win. I, I even said, uh, and everyone in the stadium was swearing at me when, when we beat the Waratahs. I said, that last scrum, I said, watch this. They'll go end to end. And what did, what did they do? Maddox scored. They went and did an end to end try and scored. And everyone looked at me and went, I've been a Rebel supporter since day one. That was, that was just textbook Rebels. Couldn't, you know, no game management. And <laughs> I think that, that needs something. And I, I don't have the answer of who you bring in. I don't think what Sean Byrne and Kevin Foote are doing at the moment has been anything special. 
I think the fact that we lost Nick Henderson as our scrum coach is really evident when you have a front row of Pone Farmasili, Jordan Uwalisi and um, Caboose Elof getting pushed around. It's, mm. it's Something's not working there. And I think it's time for a change. I think that, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting you talk about this because it comes a point as well because the, the Rebels have had really talented, exciting squads for years, for years. And this is something that has existed, you know, pre-Vessels uh, showing up. Um, but it's just the fact that they haven't been able to convert all of that potential into even a finals berth, like in, in terms of how Super Rugby was beforehand. Um, and even then they scraped in by the skin of their teeth with Super Rugby AU. And I, it's it kind of bewilders me how with the talent that they have available, that they are still struggling the way that they are and that consistency specifically, especially now that this is probably, I think, this is Vessel's fourth year Fourth year. Fourth yeah. year in charge. He's end, he's end of contract at the end of this year. Yeah, it, it, when you get to that point, like as a coach, you usually write off the first... If you are a coach, it's, it's just good sense to write off the first year because the coach is getting assembled, he's assembling the squad that he wants... Um, and then se- and then it's the second and third year where you see to start that turnaround going. We're into our fourth year and the same issues keep emerging and it comes a point where you ask, is, is this going to change if you renew him for a fifth year? Which is a very dang- which is a very difficult question to ask because he is a- similar to the rebels. Vessels is a coach with a lot of potential. He has a lot of talent. He has a lot going for him. But yet, similar to the Rebels, consistency is a problem, is a massive issue. What what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, sorry, Dylan, you were going to so say I was, I was going to add that one of the things that has just frustrated me, and it's, this is a, an Australian rugby problem, but I'll pick on the Rebels a little bit for this, is our lack of developing depth. And I think Vessel, Vessel's coach is like a man who, you know, he's on his last year of his contract. He should be throwing caution to the wind and going, Fuck it, I'm going out. I'm going out guns blazing, because if we if it works, I'm a genius and I've got my contract renewed. If it doesn't, well, you know. But he's playing to he's he's doing a lot of conservative things. But I look at a couple of years ago, we had Quade Cooper as our ten, lovely signing. I was very happy with that. But then we didn't have a backup option, and so we had Stu Dunbar, um, who I was quite excited that we signed. I watched him play for the Rising, did some pretty cool stuff. We had another kid down from Sydney. I'm not sure who we played for, but in the rising, Archie King, who was quite a talented 10. And I thought, oh, these guys are in the, the training squad. This is going to be great. Stu, got, Stu Dunbar got all of three minutes in a game that we were already going to lose. Um, Archie King never got signed by the Rebels, which was a bit sad. But then, okay, so Quaid moves on. Stu Dunbar goes and joins the Sevens team. Then we get Tamua, who is a 12, out and out 12. He's not a 10. And I'm really glad that the guys on the rugby uh, the rugby report card said that they now see him as a 12. But And then we had Andrew Deegan. I was so excited when we signed Andrew Deegan. I think Andrew Deegan's an amazing young 10. But what do we do? He got stuck on the bench. And yep, when... And I understand we had a good back line, but you really should have put Deegan in. And they should have given Deegan the chance to grow and, it's, and develop. But now we've lost Deegan. So, but now at the Rebels, we... We just, I've given up learning the young guys' names. I saw, I think we've got this, um, 
is it young Gordon from the the Reds that they, they poached? Yeah. Carter Gordon, yeah. is it? Carter Gordon? Like, yeah. We've got the last home game here. He's never been on the bench. We've never um, really had anyone that we've made look like we're going to bring a new 10 on. So we're just not developing these players in the same way that, you know, we didn't develop um, any halfback behind Will Guinea. You know, we, we lost Guinea, Goddard and Ruru at the same time. So then we had to bring in a whole new halfback. And we've got four halfbacks on our roster at the moment. And we're playing, we're trying to put three of them on the field at the same time. Like, why why do we have Joe Powell on the wing with Frank Lamani on the wing with uh, Bobby Tuttle playing halfback? Like, it doesn't, this doesn't compute to me. I don't, we've got the talent. We're just not using them properly and we're not developing depth. So... It scares me now to thinking what's going to happen to Hodges. It, it, it should it, it should excite me, but it scares me to think what's going to happen now that Hodges injured. Mm. So, a disgruntled fan you are, Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm passionate. <laughs> um, Nathan, what are you? What are your thoughts on this whole on this whole rebels rebel situation? Do you think it's uh, it's time for for Dave to to either throw caution to the wind or 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 do you reckon his time is up? I mean, you you look at his past 12 to 18 months, like, albeit, yes, they scraped in, they still made finals. They still, when you look at the strength of the Brumbies and Reds, like, if we've pointed, itself, pointed out ourselves, within those two teams, you could build a Wallaby squad that I generally think could contend with most teams around the world. And I do think there is a, that class difference between those top two teams and the rest of the competition. Uh, having said that, I think for Dave Wessels, it's going to be that trans-Tasman. I mean, you look at their season last year, they went to Dun- Dunedin and beat the Highlanders, um, I believe. I think it was the Highlanders. Yeah, it, it was. was yeah. And they, they looked good there. At the end of that, when that season abruptly shut, they, shut down, they were essentially one game out of the finals. And you look at those New Zealand teams and you think, if they, I think if they can take a couple of those games then I think Dave's position's got to be secured. And I do agree with you, Dylan. I think they need to start building that that next generation of talent. From all reports that I've seen, um, Gordon looks like an incredible talent that they've got down. And I know it's, Reg in particular was filthy that he's left the Reds and he's now the Rebels. <laughs> so I think you've got to... You do have to throw caution to the wind. And I, I'm hoping with... I mean, Hodge, Hodge's injury is a nightmare time for the Rebels, who still control their own destiny. But I hope with him out, they do look for someone young to bring in. I mean, they brought Lockie Anderson, someone that's come through that, that I think has been really good when he's been playing. I w- I'd love to see them give Gordon a run, at least that 23. But for me, for for Westwells, I think it's... And, and the Rebels in general, I think it's just how they perform in that New Zealand series. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think that's actually probably extending it to to rugby in you know in general. I think we I had a you know from chatting about it on on Friday night, a lot of people were saying, yeah, we don't reckon that this force side or this rebels side would would show up in in that New Zealand competition. Um, but an interesting point that you make there, Dylan, is that not uh, in Atho is that 
you know, last time the Brumbies went to the last time the Brumbies went to New Zealand, they won. The last time the Reds went to New Zealand, they nearly won against the Crusaders in Christchurch. That's what they should they should have won. That's they should have won that. That was and, a team with no O'Connor, Tate McDermott <laughs> off the bench, scored more tries than the Crusaders, mm. just couldn't kick. I, I maintain they should have won that game. But carry yeah. on, sorry. Yeah, um, but uh, but the last point is the last time the Rebels went to New Zealand, they won. And if you look at that New Zealand competition right now, um, the uh, Aotearoa competition, at the moment, if you, even if you just you have to look at the standings, and right now it's the Crusaders and Daylight, really. I mean, the Blues have shown some potential, but if when the Crusaders have a two two game lead advantage at the top of the table and nearly a ten point advantage at the top of the table, um. It, part of me thinks and wonders if there's an opportunity there. And I know I don't want to sound like every single Australian rugby fan because <laughs> then the, then you get there and then it's a completely different ball game. Someone's but, got to be optimistic, Nick. <laughs> I've, I've replaced Hugh Cavill as the, as the new gagger optimist um, from, from years past. But genuinely considering how the outer all competition is kind of uh, unveiling itself right now, Part of me thinks that maybe we might be better off than we are right now because when the Rebels, apart from that Rebels-Reds game the week before where the Reds really showed the Rebels up in that in that demolition, um, the Force haven't been too far off the pace behind the Brumbies and the Reds. The Rebels against the likes of the Brumbies and the Reds haven't been too far off either. Um, the only team that really is, is falling short right now in the Australian Conference is the Waratahs, which... Makes me wonder if that, if that, uh, if it'll, if when the Trans Tasman co- um, competition starts, if it will be the usual narrative of New Zealand competi- uh, teams dominating at the top. Here's a question. I'll put one last question to you, Dylan, for this for, before we move on because we have two more questions to go before we wrap up. Um, for, what would be a mandatory pass mark or a pass mark for for vessels in terms of that Trans Tasman conference, in your opinion? Oh God! Um, I'm a bit torn because I actually, after Friday, I'm scorned. I am a disgruntled Rebel fan. Um, <laughs> I think if we make, if we can, if we can pull something out for the last two games of the season and make finals, and I want to be I want to be competitive in the right way. I don't want to just go over there with our game plan is to defend because the problem with the Kiwis is they don't care. They'll just find a way through. And they they they'll, they're happy and you saw like I remember watching the the Highlanders game the other week and they had 3 minutes to go and they just were pick and go one off the ruck, pick and go one off the ruck. And I thought I don't have any confidence Australian te- like the, most Australian teams could do that for three minutes and still and still maintain possession. Like uh, I just I don't I don't have faith that we you know the uh, the rebels could do that at least. So if you could go over there and go you know again throw caution to the wind. We're going to attack. We've got some good attacking weapons. Let's attack. Maybe he can save it. Maybe. Ooh, but, strong, strong yeah. words. 
Um, we'll move on to question five, uh, which is a question uh, from Ian Roger. And he, this is a question that we have danced around a little bit in terms of uh, topics of discussion. But the question is, should the Wallabies use the sevens program as more of a pathway into the 15-a-side rugby combo? I'll throw to you, Nathan, for this one, because part of me thinks we already do, don't we? I don't think we've used it. I think this whole COVID lockdown, one of the good things about it is seeing those guys get back into the 15 system. But um, yes, absolutely. I think you, you've said, as I've already mentioned Anthony before um, in this episode, something that really kind of stood out, having listened to him speak over the past couple of days, and when you watch the, the likes of him, uh, even Holland, who came started for the Rebels in the weekend, I, I thought he was very solid at centre is that ability to be an all-round player. It sounds really simple, but I, I think he eloquently put it best, is in sevens, you have to be able to do everything. You, there's no place to hide. You can't be a weak tackler or someone will run through you. You can't be, if you're, a, if you're not quick enough, then all of a sudden there's, there's an advantage point for someone to take, to take clear advantage of you. you. It creates that environment where you have to essentially skill up and be an all-round player. And something in that Wallaby setup where it's been such a essentially a crucial point has been improving those core skills. And I think Sevens is the perfect outlet for young players coming through to do so. So absolutely, I think we should be using it. Um, Dylan, what are your thoughts on this? Because um, there are a lot of young guns and young, exciting players who have who've come through the ranks that we've talked about tonight, but also over the last couple of years. Do you think that there is a, a a benefit if you have come through the sevens system when you are transitioning into 15s, or do you think it's more just different rugby brain situation? Uh, I, th- I think it's a bit more of the uh, different rugby brain, to be honest. I think that you look at a guy like Sean McMahon, freak athlete. like He is an incredible player. Did it help that he played sevens? Yeah, I think it did. But a lot of these guys grew up playing 15s, but then went to 7s, then have gone back to 15s. Um, there are so it's, it is a bit, it is a bit of a case by case sort of thing. I do agree with Nathan. You know, it it is a game that you can't really hide in. I played at one uni games. It's a lot harder than it looks. <laughs> so especially hung, especially hungover. Um, so I, you know. Again, Lewis Holland's another one. I, I'm really hoping that he gets a run at 10. I think he'd be a really exciting 10. Um, but I, So I think it's a, it's a tough one because I think it, it, it could be a pathway, but there's nothing to say that these guys are going to be successful because a lot of them are going to go, well, I'm going to run and look for space. And the last Wallaby that tried to do that and pissed everyone off was Kurtley Beal, who just used to crab walk sideways and... You know, a lot of sevens players, like I, I, a lot of sevens players will do that. They'll run and they'll try and find that space and they'll hopefully set something up, which is, a, you know, quite an amazing thing to watch when it's seven aside and there's a lot of that, there's all that space. But even if you look at someone like um, Jarrell Skelton, who hasn't had much of a run at the Rebels, hasn't had the same time and space to do what he's been able to, you know, made highlight reels of at um, for the Aussie sevens. Now, I'm hoping he'll get to show off a little bit more in the uh, the next couple of weeks. But, yeah, I, I think it needs to be done as a case-by-case. Case. I don't think it's a blanket, oh, sevens players are going to make good 15s players. That makes sense. 
Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's it's. I think that's probably my point as well. I there are some players kind of touching on your point that it's of, of the, in terms of the difference of style of game um, that will be more suited to a 15 side game. And there'll be other players that will be more suited to a seven side game. What matters is that you, you're within that those players fight. If the, if that player is more suited to playing the sevens style, more open, much faster, free flowing game, then they should be there. But if, if, if that player has, you know, made the transition from sevens over to, you know, the 15 game has shown potential as a, as a potential Wallaby player, then the opportunity is there. What matters is that they're in the system. Um, and it's the style might be different. Um, I think it might, it, there is a potential argument that you can make here in terms of the actual position. So, for example, if you find a good winger in 15 who, um, who would have done well in sevens, uh, you can make an argument that, that specific positions uh, you could rely more on the sevens pathway. But... Um, darned as all hell if you're going to find a good prop in sevens. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we know. Uh, you know, you can get a, get a, I, I know a few good kicking props at the moment. Every, <laughs> it's, it, it's pre-season with the thirds. Everyone wants to think they're a... Uh, everyone's putting their hand up for fly half at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh, it's, an, it's I reckon it's a case by case basis thing, but you never know. You never know. It's you what never matters. Know. You never know. What matters is that they're in the system. Um, we're we're up to our last question now, and this is probably the most serious and most important question of the entire night. Um, shout out to Meredith um, on Twitter. Now you may have seen everyone that uh, Green and Gold Rugby's Twitter has gotten a little more controversial of late, um, and we're not going to name names as uh, to who is responsible for managing that Twitter. Um, including a potential small spat with uh, one Lord Laurie Fisher um, over the course of the weekend. Um, but I'm going to throw to you, Nathan, for this very serious and important final question. Does Has Rugby Reg become more salty when the Reds are winning? Oh, God, Jesus, that's a hand grenade. <laughs> oh, I mean, he's got, he got the reaction. If, if anyone saw the, the tweet after, after the Reds win, he got the reaction he was looking for. I mean... To be honest, fair play. As someone who's someone who went through the glorious stages of the Waratahs, I I was more than happy to give it left, right, and center. So, he has, his team's undefeated. Fair enough. Fair enough. He, he can throw all, all he likes around. <laughs> it's 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 fascinating to me because I recording uh, the the uh, Green and Gold Rugby show at a time when everything was going to hell for the Wallabies at that time and the. Continual frustration as well. Additionally, at the Reds especially, I can understand why the zealotness has come back for Reg right now. I can understand, mate. Shout out. I understand. It will pass. What do you reckon, Dylan? Do you reckon he's too salty, or do you reckon, uh, or do you reckon, let the hate flow? Let, yeah, you know, as they uh, said in Star Wars, let the hate flow through. <laughs> Sorry, Laurie. Uh, <laughs> uh, look, I. I I've I've looked at it. It looks sus. But <laughs> the same in saying that, um, Damon Murphy did the exact same thing to the Rebels on Friday night. Put his hand out, set advantage, and then set advantage over. And it was like the Rebels made no gain. It should have gone back for something. You can't like. So I could understand the saltiness of Laurie Fisher. <laughs> but you know what? Just. Take take it when they come. enjoy it, Reg. You, you had a, you had a few years on the um, on the outer with the the Reds. You know they did, they were they weren't as strong. 
Enjoy it. I can't wait for the day I can be a Salty Rebels fan. <laughs> a Salty Rebels fan for the right reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yes, let the let the salt flow. That's all we say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That made, that made me laugh. But, yeah, it's... Uh, Reg is, is he's getting it's getting he's getting over the game line and all the hottest topics of Australian rugby and uh, none more so than when the Reds are winning. It's uh, it's interesting that they chose to end the uh, to end the uh, the Green and Gold Rugby Show because uh, any time that uh, the Reds smash the Waratahs, he would be the first one to say, "So podcast next week, guys. We all good? Yep, we're good. Yep, fantastic." <laughs> I'm waiting for the one when if they win Super Rugby Australia, which I mean, or and or Trans Tasman, which I mean, with a squad they have, they probably could. No, that I, message will come out of the blue. Yeah, look, I'm. Well, everyone knows. Everyone promised that the Green and Gold Rugby Show would only come back if we win the Bled is Low. Um, though, if the Reds win, but if they were to win the Trans Tasman or whatever, I reckon uh, could we could we could we force that? Reg, uh, if you're listening to this. If you've made it to the end of this one minute, 20 minute, one hour, 20 minute podcast, let us know. Would the Green and Gold Rugby Show come back if the Reds win Super Rugby AU or the Trans-Tasman competition or both? Uh, let us know. Let's see if let's see how much the salt flows. Don't, don't jinx it, Nick. I'm not <laughs> oh, Shots fired. If Some, I... Someone's just cost themselves the job as a producer. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, well. Well, that'll bring us to the end uh, of the drop kickoff on that note. <laughs> Thank you so much, uh, Dylan and Nathan, for coming on uh, the podcast. It's a pleasure. Chain to you, lads, always. Our pleasure. Thanks for having me. Likewise. Always an absolute pleasure to be talking rugby with you guys. We'll, uh, we'll try and aim to get another episode out uh, before the end, uh, before finals uh, for Super Rugby AU. And, uh, of course, we'll, we'll try and make them a bit more regular. It's been a busy time. March was a busy time for all of us. We had we had a lot of rugby stuff to cover. Um, but uh, we hope you enjoyed this uh, this episode, and we will catch you the next time around. Well, what did go wrong? I'll have to look, look and think about it, think about it deeply, very deeply. Did it hinge in the end on a bit of genius from Shirley Bombo? Bit of genius, bit of magic. Shirley Bombo, very interesting, very good, yeah. Very good. Three cheers for Shirley Bombo, very good, very good.